Today on the Sunshine Economy, a mask maker in Miami Lakes cannot find buyers despite the pandemic. We haven't sold one order to any government this year. Where we could have made three billion masks, we've stopped. Medical products maker Demitech moved into masks early during the pandemic, but is now left holding tens of millions of them. We have not sold anything to any federal or state entity since 2020. I'm Tom Hudson. Also on today's program, more evidence of how the germ still has a grip on the job market. We may have turned the corner on COVID itself, but that may take a while to sink into the labor market. What this pandemic has shown is that there are deep inequities in how we organize labor. It's all coming up after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. Luis Aguayo is mad. He's not angry mad, more disappointed mad. He's mad about masks, but not about having to wear them. He's mad about making hundreds of millions of masks, expecting the government to buy them. State and federal governments did not buy them, and he's left with aisle after aisle after aisle of boxes of masks in a Miami Lakes warehouse. Over there we have our shipping department, and then beyond there you have the inventory of masks. We have about 200 million unsold masks. This is Lewis's sister, Carla. She's the vice president of human resources at the company. You have row upon row upon row upon row here ahead of us. And then to the left, if you lean over the balcony, it's almost the entire half of this manufacturing floor is covered with pallet after pallet after pallet of masks that are unsold? Correct. It's an enormous amount of inventory. We toured Demitech's main manufacturing facility in Miami Lakes late one morning in September. It had been nine months since we first spoke with Luis Aguayo about the company's pandemic pivot into personal protection equipment. That was last December. We put it all into PPE, all of it. And we bet the house, as you say. It has not been a winning bet. After spending about $15 million, hiring hundreds of new workers, expanding its business beyond its core medical suture business into masks, the company is left holding almost a warehouse full of surgical masks that it expected to sell in bulk to state and federal governments. Instead, it's left marketing masks on its own website to the consumer market, selling them not by the pallet full, but by the batch. Uh, We have not sold anything to any federal or state entity since 2020. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Aguayo moved the company his father started into masks, hoping to fulfill a demand for a secure source of important protective pandemic gear. The idea was a steady supply of American-made equipment like masks, gowns, and gloves was important, that it should not be vulnerable to foreign manufacturers and international trade tensions. It has not worked out that way. This is how Aguayo described his motivations in December to us. We've always been a big proponent of knowing that the only way really to make this country great is to make things here. And and because our family comes from immigrants who made the American dream of making a company, that's always been a big factor for us. The big buyers, local, state, and federal governments, just have not been buying at the pace and scale Aguayo bet they would. 
As of late May, the national medical stockpile included over 400 million N95 masks and less than 300 million surgical masks. In late July, the Biden administration said it would buy another 127 million N95s. More demand could be coming. The infrastructure bill passed by the U.S. Senate in August includes the requirement that any federal government contract to buy American-made masks and other protective gear last for at least two years. That would supply makers like Demotec more assurance that a big buyer will stick with it, soaking up the supply of masks we saw waiting in its Miami Lakes warehouse. Dozens and dozens of pallets here, and each pallet's got to be about at least five, five and a half feet tall. Each pallet has got to have, what, two, four, six, eight, sixteen boxes on it, and then each box probably has hundreds, hundreds of uh, masks in it, and it just goes on and on and on. These were all made without a specific buyer and now we're just waiting for the market, waiting for the buyer to come in. Surgical mask of 20 cases over there, 40,000 units on a pallet, so 40,000 individual surgical masks and just row after row after row of these masks boxed up on pallets, shrink-wrapped, ready to be shipped out. You are listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Stay in touch with us by sending us an email, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear the voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Be sure to listen to the BBC News Hour on Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. to hear stories and voices from around the globe. Still to come on our program this hour, the mask market, trade, and politics. Do you think that the trade policy and the government role in PPE, particularly when it comes to the American-made mask market, has put Americans at risk? Well, this is a touchy subject. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Nine months ago, before there were COVID-19 vaccines and before all of the economic restrictions were lifted in South Florida, Luis Arguello had launched a $15 million investment expanding his family's medical products company into making masks. For years, Demotech had been a global supplier of sutures and surgical mesh. Remember, for weeks or longer, hospitals stopped doing regular surgeries in order to handle any surges of COVID-19 patients. This is how Arguello described it to us back in December. There was a shortage and a a decrease in the purchases of our medical devices because people weren't allowed to go to hospitals around the world. They weren't getting operated. And traditionally, medicine has been a recession-proof industry. So this was a first for us. So was the company's move into masks. 
It got the equipment and raw materials set up to make surgical masks and N95 masks, rented a facility in Doral, and hired hundreds of people. And we rolled the dice with no clients, no buyers, and said, let's see what happens. We need to put our people to work. And that was back in March. And that was what really started it. That was in March of 2020. We first spoke with Aguayo nine months later. We visited him again just last month. Even though the pandemic is still wearing on, the mask business is a mixed bag. He says they have not sold a mask to a state or federal government this year. Uh, business is up and down. On retail side, it's doing better because we have had a lot of the restrictions that were placed on us in terms of advertisement removed. So we're being able to advertise more, get our message out to consumer. So our direct-to-consumer business is significantly higher than it was previously when we last spoke. Unfortunately, our main client, which is the government and states, that's doing worse. Is that a quality issue? Is it a price issue? It is a quantity issue. It's a politics issue. When the current administration came into power, we were hoping that they would refill the stockpiles, that they approved all this funding for PPE to get out there and for schools to buy and for states to buy, but nobody's bought. As an industry, no one really can wrap their head around the why aspect because the direction from the administration is to use masks and PPE. The funding is approved by Congress. It's there. People can buy, but the governments and the states simply are not buying. We don't know why. President Biden has issued an executive order. There's been other agency recommendations for state governments and healthcare agencies to purchase American-made PPE and masks. That would include Demetech. That's correct. The mandate is there. From the executive level, the direction is clear and the funding is there, but it hasn't gotten to the lower levels. So if you look at the strategic national stockpile on surgical masks, which is the mask that I'm wearing on my face, which is the blue one that many people wear, we have approximately 400 million masks in the stockpile. That is one per American. These masks are designed to be worn for three or four hours. So you have uh, masks for people to wear for less than a day. We import approximately a billion masks a month. So if you prorate that, that's about two weeks of inventory. How can our federal stockpile have two weeks of goods on something that we know we're in shortage of? So it's, it really does not make a lot of sense. The president announced in July the strategic national stockpile uh, would be buying 127 million N95 masks, different than the surgical mask you're wearing. Uh, ha has that led to any business? They did purchase N95s. I think they have three or 400 million N95s in the, in the national stockpile. In my opinion, that is not enough. Uh, but most of those contracts went to the very big companies like 3M or Honeywell, unfortunately. You told the New York Times, quote, this is a full-on economic warfare. Who's at war? China. So if you look at the face masks or the surgical masks that I'm wearing, pre-COVID, those would arrive to a hospital somewhere near or under 10 cents a mask. There were shortages of the masks. All the good uh, factories within China stopped exporting. The actual good factories were supplying the Chinese people and the Chinese government. And new companies that didn't have any regulations or approvals started to produce. Now, these were very low-quality masks. They didn't filter. They had graphite and formaldehyde, which were carcinogenic effects. And they started exporting to the U.S. near a dollar. That spurred the American patriotism of let's produce this in the United States. And about 28 facilities stood up uh, throughout the country. As those facilities started to, to ramp up, you would see pricing from American companies anywhere from 20 cents to 40 cents. So significantly less than the, the price gouging coming from China. When those facilities got up and running, what you started to see out of China was masks being sold at less than a penny. Now, how could it be that something that was sold 10 cents pre-COVID 
be sold for less than a penny when just the freight cost from China is two or three cents. So they were selling products here less than the freight cost. Forget about the actual cost of the mask. And they were doing that to make sure that the American companies didn't survive. Now, if you look at the political long game of this, is, is if our country depends on China for critical supplies, we won't take such a hard line stance on them politically. And that's what's really going on. You remember this debate in the early days of the pandemic in late February of 2020, all through March, April, and May, about strong voices from Washington and elsewhere about American-made PPE, not to have the American supply of critical healthcare supplies be contingent on foreign companies and foreign competition. The message is clear, and the message is, has backing from both political parties. That is what is the big conundrum here. The message is approved, the funding is approved, but there is no action that is being taken. So it's the market itself, the buyers themselves then? I think that politics is slow and there's a lot of uh, discussions, but sometimes it doesn't lead to action. So of those 28 companies that I'm talking about, many of them, most of them have closed their doors. And it's because the government and the states are not buying from them. They're not supporting from them. So all of this industry that was created across the full PPE line, I'm not only surgical, you look at gowns, N95s, all the companies that stood up are closing their doors. The companies heard the cry for help. They stood up. They invested millions of dollars. Many people invested their lifetime savings. And now they're closing their doors because the country's not supporting them and buying from them. Diagnose this issue a little bit further, a little bit deeper. You mentioned the patriotic incentive is there. The messaging is there from both political parties about American-made personal protective equipment for healthcare, masks and gowns and whatnot. And the demand is certainly there, right? I mean, the usage continues, certainly in this last spike of cases with the Delta variant, the demand is, is there. So why not that absorption of the American supply? I think there's been no clear leadership uh, with regards to PPE. So you have the public statements to wear masks and to buy American, but it doesn't correlate to action. So if you look at some Asian countries when COVID first struck, they were sending masks to every household. If you look at schools, which is the hot topic in news today, they want kids to wear masks, right? But there's no clear direction of where do you buy these masks? So you see children wearing cloth masks. There's billions of dollars for the schools to acquire PPE, but they're not doing it. They're leaving it up to the parents. So my personal opinion is, is that the federal government should take more of an active position and send American masks to the hospital, send American masks to every household and to every school, and make sure that everyone is properly protected, not leave it up to the consumers with no clear direction of where or how to adequately protect yourselves. So they've done it with vaccines, but they haven't done it with the PPE side. You think an American-made mask purchase mandate is necessary. Well, I don't think you should push the cost onto the to, to the American citizens who are already hurting economically. For you know, many of them have lost their jobs. I think the American government should buy and then give out to the entire country free of charge, as they're doing with the testing and the vaccines. Do you think that the trade policy and the government role in PPE, particularly when it comes to the American-made mask market, has put Americans at risk? Well, this is a touchy subject. Uh, masks have unfortunately become extremely politicized. My personal opinion for what it's worth is that we've let politicians run the discourse around the virus when it should have always been led by scientists and science changes. So I feel that the CDC, 
always should have been the one pushing the image, and that should have been everyone needs to wear a mask. What type of mask should be worn? They initially started coming out with the message of wear anything, wear a bandana, wear a scarf, and we know that doesn't work. So they should have always had a clear message of wear an N95 or wear a surgical mask. These masks are what protect you the most. These are the manufacturers that are qualified and have a clear scientific message given out to the country, and that's what we're lacking. The CDC still prioritizes N95 masks for hospital workers. Do you think it should change that prioritization? Yes, there is a surplus of N95s in the country. Uh, when we go down after this interview, I'll show you what 20 million N95s look like, what 200 million surgical masks looks like. All the U.S. producers are sitting in excess inventories. We have laid off approximately 1,500 employees and are no longer producing at the scale in which we are because we don't have the demand. So I do believe the CDC and the scientific community should be rating the quality of masks, giving the consumer clear information on where and what type of mask to buy. And I feel that the government should be subsidizing that cost so that every American can have the best protection paid for by the federal government. What's the return on that investment that you're asking for on the part of essentially taxpayers to subsidize part of this industry? It's a difficult question to answer. I don't have the answer for you. But what I can tell you is the price difference is negligible. And we're pulling a lot of employees off of unemployment. So if you look at the cost of production, maybe 50% is raw material, 50% is labor. But of those raw materials, that's also US made. So we're paying people to work. So it's a difficult question, but I would say it's not that much of a difference in the long run. Speaking with Luis Arguello, president of medical products maker Demitech at its headquarters in Miami Lakes. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Please be sure to check out our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Also, leave a review and hit subscribe. And listen during the 9 a.m. hour Tuesday through Friday here on WLRN for the BBC News Hour. Still to come, the decision ahead for the Miami Mask Making Company. Do we continue to produce? Do we continue with this capacity? We know our country is going to need more masks, but how long can we continue to hold out? I'm Tom Hudson. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. During the first spring of the COVID-19 pandemic, masks were a hot commodity. There were worries about the U.S. being beholden to foreign manufacturers, and there was a patriotic push to make masks here in America. We're not talking about cloth masks or vanity masks, but the type of masks to provide a higher level of protection against catching or spreading the virus, surgical masks and N95 masks. That first spring, medical products maker Demitech decided to invest $15 million, rent a warehouse in Doral about 15 miles from its Miami Lakes headquarters, and begin making those masks by the millions. In that facility, we had about 1,500 employees. If you go today, you have a security crew. The layoffs came in rounds. Demitech had staffed up and was running three shifts, but every few months the company had to cut a shift when mask buyers, namely state and federal governments, did not materialize at the scale Demitech expected. It was one of the risks for the company as it expanded into mask-making and hopes to continue. We haven't sold one order to any government this year where we could have made 3 billion masks. We've stopped. 
We spoke with Demotech President Luis Aguayo at its facility in Miami Lakes. And yes, we wore masks during our interview. So prior to COVID, we had never made a mask. We were making very complex medical devices, ranging from sutures to hernia mesh to endoscopics. We were faced with the shutdown of operations globally. So what we did is we moved our staff over from making medical devices to making PPE. Our engineers made machines, our staff made masks, and we got up operational. Over this year and a half, we became the largest surgical mask facility in the U.S. We got up to about 2,000 employees and in a very heavily automated facility, making a quality mask. Unfortunately, due to the lack of demand or direction from the government, we've had to downsize some of that capacity, and we've laid off approximately, as I said, about 1,500 employees. We've reduced about 75%. What does that look like today? A lot of empty machines and a lot of inventory. The good thing is is that the capacity is there and it can be turned on quickly if we receive government support, but that has a time frame on it. So, for example, we have to take action probably in the next 90 days, or we will have to turn back part of the real estate. And then once you disassemble those machines, returning to that capacity will be very difficult. The ramp up happened very quickly, and you're talking about here, the ramp down. And the time frame is, what, the end of the calendar year for you to see that demand pick up for the supply of Demotech masks in order to, I guess, justify the kind of investments that have already been made? I would say even sooner than that, probably 30 to 60 days we need to see something. Uh, otherwise, we have to start winding down towards the end of the year. At, at the location where we have surgical mask machines, that, that facility outputted about 120 million masks a month. And it's a standalone dedicated facility that was ramped up. And the real estate component of it, we have to turn in the lease or extend. And that's the decision that we're facing now. Now, we have other product lines which we can rely on, which have helped us as a company. But I can tell you that amongst the 28 factories in the U.S., many of them stood up only for masks, and many of them have already shut their doors. Now, what is very negative here is is that these are the people that heard the call to arms and invested their life savings in standing this up. I feel that this virus is probably going to go on for some time, and we will see another virus. So these entrepreneurs that stood up have learned a very difficult lesson, and the next time we need them, will they again invest their life savings? Will they again heed the call to arms? And I can tell you from confidential conversations with many of them is no, they all feel abandoned. They invested everything, sleepless nights, and they got the facilities up and running and now they're left hanging. How many masks at the height of production was Demotech cranking out and what does production look like now? At the height of our production, we were making about 5 million masks a day, which equates to about 150 million a month. We're running 24-7. Today, we're outputting less than a million a day. So less than $30 million a month. The impact on your cost structure, obviously, has gone down. But I got to imagine, what does inventory look like? Inventory currently, we have about 200 million surgical masks and about 20 million N95s. So all, all of our investment as a, as a company is sitting in inventory that we need to sell. Those are unsold masks. They're not called for. They're not earmarked for any particular buyer. Unsold. That's correct. Ready to ship. And who are the buyers? potential buyers? Our largest buyer last year was the federal government. We as a company made the mistake of trying to supply everyone who needed the product without forcing people to long-term contracts. And I think that was the one lesson that if we had to take away from this is, is instead of being such good Samaritans, we should have been better businessmen and supplied the people who 
locked into long-term contracts. That wasn't our, our real motivation in this. Our motivation was to help our country. And by doing so, we supplied everyone, no minimum orders, whoever needed masks at any price, whatever they needed. And now we've been left with huge inventories in this question of, do we continue to produce? Do we continue with this capacity? We know our country is going to need more masks, but how long can we continue to hold out? What are the inputs going into that decision that you have to make? It's a financial one. Uh, the biggest question for us is the real estate component of it. Uh, living in Miami, Florida, the, the real estate market here is, is incredibly high. And we have the facility which we are in doing this interview where we manufacture a lot of our medical devices and, and a lot of our N95s. We own this real estate. So here we're okay. Uh, we can just hold on to the machines and hold on to the inventory and eventually sell it slowly. The big issue is the surgical mask, which is a standalone facility. It's the largest in the United States. It's the mask that was never made in the U.S. pre-COVID. They were all made in China and Mexico. And it's the mask that is having the hardest time surviving because that's where the lowest price is. But in my personal opinion, you see myself wearing it. You see my sister wearing it. It's the one that the majority of Americans wear because it's comfortable. It works. It's a level three, high protection, but it's easy to breathe out of. Not everyone wants to wear an N95. So that's really the one that has the biggest pressure to survive and the shortest time frame. Our reasoning for doing this was never a business one. It was more about helping our country. So luckily, we were a profitable medical device company, and, and we were able to stand on that leg to get through this, and we still are. But it hurts to know that our country built a capacity which we didn't have, which we still need because we are still in a pandemic, and future pandemics will come, and we're going to let that, that capacity go away. And it's, it's heartbreaking, to be honest with you. Is it a price conundrum, the cost of manufacturing, the cost of good for an American-made surgical mask versus a Chinese-made surgical mask? If you look at direct costs and real costs, absolutely. So we are very compliant. 100% of our raw materials are bought and sourced within the United States. So from the non-woven to the elastics to the box, just in raw material costs, it's considerably higher than what it's coming from China. Now, the raw material made out of China has no regulations. You're breathing in things that are not governed by anybody. So raw materials, one, labor, although our facility is heavily automated, as we've all seen, there's labor shortages. We're having to pay extremely high labor rates to get people to work. And that's for basic labor. And then when you look at engineering and higher ups, labor cost has gone up. So it is expensive to manufacture in this country, but we're making something that can ultimately save a life. So we're talking pennies of a difference. In the grand scheme of things, not only are you saving lives, but you're creating high-paying jobs. So it's probably cheaper in the long run. And what about the market, the end buyer, uh, and the end buyer of scale? Not just the federal government, but the healthcare industry. What, what kind of appetite, what kind of uh, ability have they shown to, to pay for that cost of good? So the private market, if you look at hospitals last year, they were all buying on price. Now, to their defense, hospitals have lost a lot of money. They make their money on elective surgery and they're not being able to operate. If you talk to hospitals today, many of them want to onshore 20, 30, 40% of their purchases to U.S. companies. Now, that's because they're having to shoulder that cost difference wholly on themselves. They want to do the right thing, but ultimately they're driven by business. And they are hurting. They've lost a year or two of little revenue. If you talk to doctors and nurses, many of them have pay cuts. So I feel that the hospitals want to do the right thing, but they do need help 
from government. They shouldn't have to shoulder all of it by themselves. And if they did have a little bit of help in covering that price difference, I think you would see that hospitals will convert 100% to U.S. supplies. How do you think now about the decision to expand Demotech's business into surgical masks, that decision that you made back in the spring of 2020? Financially, it's a difficult decision if we did the right thing or not. Morally, we saved lives, and that's all that really matters. And even if we end up having to close the facility and donate all the masks, it was the right thing to do, and that was why we did it, and it will always be the right reason for that. As someone who runs a medical device company who expanded into masks, have you or has the company received criticism because of the politicalization of masks in general society? Absolutely. If you look at some of the reviews we've received uh, when we send out mailers for the you know different models that we've started to create, we've received some pretty nasty email from people who think that you know masks stop you from breathing and we're killing people and doing the wrong thing and some ugly messages. But I would tell you that that's one percent of the messages I've gotten. The other ninety nine percent are amazing messages with thanks, being able to give someone an N ninety five who otherwise maybe has an immunocompromised disorder that can't leave their house. So the fact that we're able to ship them a box of masks, or we're even selling five masks, not even an entire mask. People just need a small amount to get out of their house. We're doing it. We're not profitable in it, but we're doing it to help people. And we get a lot of positive messages for that. I got to imagine that's a very different position for someone like you to be in. Normally selling medical devices uh, are life-saving devices. And now, while you say it's a small number of the communications you're receiving, it can't help but sit with you. It does. And what I can tell you is that our entire family, because the company is owned by a family, we all read the customer service emails. Uh, so we'll get those blind emails, and you'll see on our family chat on a Saturday night, we'll talk about it. So we read every email that comes in, a good one or a bad one. So it, it's it's tough times that we're living in. But we're all going to make it through. That is Luis Arguello. He's president of medical products company Demitech. We spoke with him at his company's headquarters in Miami Lakes. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Stay in contact with us on social media by sending us a message on Twitter or Instagram. And catch the BBC News Hour Tuesday through Fridays at 9 a.m. here on WLRN. Still to come. Despite Demotech's disappointing move into masks, its traditional medical business is growing again. The supply chain has been exposed that we have a major issue. So what we're looking at in terms of a company is, is where are we strong? Where do we have a presence? Where have we seen the biggest weakness in terms of supply chain? back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. For almost 20 years, Demitech experienced steady growth. It makes sutures and surgical mesh in Miami Lakes and sells its products to hospitals in more than 100 countries. Then the pandemic hit and hospitals stopped performing any surgeries except for emergencies. The goal was to keep beds and staff available for surges of patients infected by COVID-19. Demitech moved fast and expanded to make masks, but that business is struggling. 
It has hundreds of millions of surgical masks sitting in its Miami Lakes warehouse. Masks it made figuring state and federal governments would be buyers. They have not been buyers. Despite the mask disappointment, Demitex President Luis Arguello says the company is using the lessons learned to help it return to growth and expand in other areas. How has the mask business impacted the company's overall prospects? I would say it's opened a lot of eyes internally in terms of how quickly we can scale and pivot. So we have shifted our attention to new product lines and tried to add new offerings into our portfolio for 2021 and 2022. What does that look like? What are those new products? We're looking at getting into injections, cannulas, syringes, uh, possibly gowns, different aspects in the OR, which has always been our core business domestically in the U.S., but also in 130 countries globally. So some of it personal protective gear, but not all of it. Some of it back to more of that core device market that Demotech started in. Correct. I do think that the supply chain has been exposed, that we have a major issue. So what we're looking at in terms of a company is, is where are we strong? Where do we have a presence? Where have we seen the biggest weakness in terms of supply chain? Where are we relying on Asia? What makes sense to produce in the country where it can be automated and where people will pay for quality? And that's where we're putting our attention. What's the condition of your traditional medical device market, including sutures? Uh, sutures is back to normal. Within the U.S., we're doing very well. Uh, we have actually been able to open a lot of doors with hospitals who've gotten to know our brand through the PPE side. Internationally, there's waves. COVID is very strange in the way that it attacks countries. Uh, some countries will be under a very uh, big shutdown, and then a couple months later, they're totally open. So because we're in 130 countries, we're following that wave as COVID goes down into a country, operations go up, so our core business goes up as COVID, you know, and we play that game. Uh, so, but in general, the business is doing fairly well. The medical device part of that business is kind of counteracted by COVID, right? When COVID comes in, hospitals tend to reduce or if not eliminate those elective procedures that can be beneficial to the core business at Demotech. So what is that business flow tell you, for instance, about this current Delta strain that the southeastern United States and the United States has been dealing with? Unfortunately, I think no one knows how long this is going to last or how many variants we're going to see. Uh, my personal opinion is this is probably going to be with us for the rest of our lifetimes. We just need to learn how to live with it. Uh, but I do think that we will see a very large healthcare effect. People are not being able to access the traditional medicine that they normally have because hospitals are full of COVID. So that ranges from general procedures to electives to just general checkups. People aren't going to the doctor the way they should. And I think in three to five years, we're going to see a lot more cases, procedures, and hopefully not, but probably a lot of deaths that could have been avoided had we had our hospitals open the way that we did prior to COVID. Some analysis pegs the global growth of the suture business alone about 50% before the end of this decade. Do you see that kind of growth potential for Demotech's portion of that business? I do as the rest of the world continues to have access to more healthcare. Uh, sutures is a great product, very difficult to manufacture. Very few people actually make it. In the U.S., it's a handful of companies that actually produce. But that's really what, what has intrigued me or confused me with regards to PPE. Because on sutures, it's a component that if it fails, the patient dies. So in no country around the world am I pegged against the lowest cost manufacturer. It's always a handful of companies bidding against each other in a reasonable price, but pre-qualified based on documentation, quality control, and quality of product. That is what is missing from the PPE aspect where 
everyone around the world has looked for the lowest price. But it's the one product that can potentially save your life. You don't hear people saying, I want the cheapest vaccine or the cheapest test. I want the best test, the fastest test, the best vaccine. Don't you want the best mask? The healthcare industry, when asked about competing on price or price transparency, oftentimes will quickly pivot to a conversation around quality of healthcare. And it sounds like that's the same kind of characteristic that you'd like to see in the market when it comes to masks. Yeah, but hospitals are, are, are governed by a lot of rules. So morality, ethics, doing the right thing on the product is not necessarily up to the purchasing manager. Talk to a lot of purchasing managers say, I want to buy American. I want to buy the best product, but I'll lose my job. So we need to do a lot of work on the, on the healthcare system. And that involves insurance companies, how much is actually paid to the hospital. And that's a very big conversation. But in general, I do think there needs to be some legislation to help hospitals bridge the gap on that price difference for domestic versus international supplies on all product offerings, not just PPE. For Demitech, how is the company positioned for the pandemic to continue? We're doing well because we're diversified. So we have a lot of different products from operation devices to the PPE. So we are optimistic about our future. In December, when we spoke via Zoom, you told us, quote, we are firm believers that the healthcare sector will probably change the way it uses PPE forever. Do you still believe that? I do. I, I speak to a lot of hospitals who are giving masks to every patient that walks in. Doctors are wearing masks throughout the hospital. That's been a significant increase in usage of PPE that wasn't there prior. I think that's here to stay. When you look at flights, for example, I do believe that a very large amount of population is going to be continuing to wear PPE on flights and stadiums and high population or high density events. Will we be having it in an interview on a one-on-one? -on -one? Hopefully not. But I do think that there's going to be an increased demand and usage for the foreseeable future. Do you think it'll change the way PPE is purchased? Good question. Unfortunately, I would hope so but haven't seen the action taken in the last almost two years. So I'm doubtful as towards whether that will ever happen. That's Demitech President Luis Arguello. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. You can hear the interview we did with Arguello back in December of last year when it had high hopes for its mask business. Just search Sunshine Economy Masks on your favorite podcast app to find that particular program. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And be sure to listen to the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. to hear stories and voices from around the globe. Still to come on our program, the latest evidence of how the germ still has a grip on the job market. We may have turned the corner on COVID itself, but that may take a while to sink into the labor market. What this pandemic has shown is that there are deep inequities and how we organize labor. I'm Tom Hudson, and we're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us by sending us an email. Our email address is sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. It's sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. 
Daily new infections of COVID-19 in Florida are dropping. The number of people hospitalized with the virus is falling. There are no restrictions on businesses, but the job market continues struggling. September was another month showing just how linked the economy is to the germ. I think it's definitely still influencing the economy. This is Dr. Zinzi Bailey. She's a social epidemiologist with the University of Miami. Because even if we're not going to officially restrict uh, people from uh, going into their offices or working, people are thinking about what is my risk level? What's going to happen when I go back to work or to a particular job? Most weeks this season on the Sunshine Economy, we are talking about the epidemiology and the economy as the pandemic wears on. We may have turned the corner on COVID itself. This is Professor Howard Frank. He watches the economy as director at FIU's Metropolitan Center. But that may take a while to sink into the labor market. American companies created 194,000 new jobs in September. Now, that would be a decent number, except for the fact of the pandemic-induced depression during the spring of 2020. It was the slowest month for job growth this year and is a big drop from June and July. As COVID cases were falling when the summer began, companies back then were adding about one million new jobs per month. Even with COVID numbers getting better, the increases are, are, are spotty, and that could be everything from shortages of labor to shortages of semiconductors. There's a lot going on here, a lot that's, that's happening. Frank's reference to a semiconductor shortage has shut down plants making cars and pickup trucks in the United States for a few weeks here and there. Meantime, job openings have been at record highs, but there were fewer people in the job market in September than a month before. And while that helped push down the national unemployment rate to the lowest level since the pandemic began, the drop in people looking for work is a sign the job market remains far from healthy. You know, we've taken away the extended unemployment benefits. And you would think that that would be giving a jumpstart to job searching. And from what we're seeing so far, whether it's Democratic states or Republican states, the cut doesn't seem to have much of a difference. And I'm wondering if this is, give it time, but is it just that we're going through some sorting out? You probably have some part of the labor force that is still reluctant to go back because of safety factors. What this pandemic has shown is that there are deep inequities in how we organize labor. This is Dr. Zinzi Bailey again, the epidemiologist from the University of Miami. Who is more exposed and who isn't? what protections we have available, and even thinking about um, uh, government agencies like OSHA, you know, basic standards. Those questions about how potential workers are thinking about safety and reassessing workplace opportunities are especially relevant to South Florida's hospitality industry. The data released last week by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is national in scope. We won't see the specific state and regional data for another two weeks. Still, the job gains last month nationally were led by the leisure and hospitality sector, which added 74,000 positions. No doubt, some of those were here in Florida. However, 
The sector was adding five times the number of jobs just a few months ago, and it remains one and a half million jobs short of where it was nationally, just as the pandemic took hold. It's not just about increasing pay and offering a big bonus to get people on, but it's also thinking about what are the protections and benefits that people have in starting a particular job? What are um, the reasonable assurances of protection, of safety that people might have in a particular job? A lot of anxiety out there and a lot of burnout out there, which I wonder if that is taking a toll or whether we are still in some kind of an anxiety stage with this. And it's going to take longer Do people think, well, this month it's Delta and two months from now it's going to be Epsilon? Or are they thinking that there's, you know, this is just going to go into a morph into a cycle of ups and downs depending on another variant? I think that that's still out there. Consider the shortage of workers for some essential jobs, like driving a school bus. Miami-Dade County public school bus drivers protested over the weekend over pay and longer working hours. Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach schools have experienced a shortage of bus drivers this school year. Those bus drivers have to put up with a lot with our kids. Right? <laughs> um, and then on top of that, we have COVID. They have to weigh whether it's worth it to have 30 kids in a bus driving around. Are there masks? Are they going to be required? There's a lot of questions that bus drivers had. Maybe it's a time that actually I'm going to retire or uh, I'm going to try something else. Maybe I can have my own business or something like that. There's a lot of rethinking of professions (laughs) in a sense of saying, actually, I'm not getting the protections I need to continue to do this job within the context of COVID. Some point to the pandemic boom of internet shopping also playing a role with the shortage of school bus drivers. As demand for Amazon deliveries has skyrocketed and the company has expanded, drivers may be able to make more money driving packages instead of children. Working women have been especially hurt by the pandemic job market. While the economy created new jobs last month overall, women lost 26,000 jobs, while the number of women not considered part of the job market jumped by almost 400,000. It's the largest one-month increase since the spring, women just dropping out of the job market. And then there's pay. Wages are rising, but with inflation also rising, the bigger paychecks quickly get eaten up by higher prices for everything from gasoline, groceries, and other items. You know, it raises some real interesting questions about, okay, you get a job for 15 or $20 an hour. What does that mean if you're paying that out for good daycare? Or are you getting a reevaluation of career? Don't know. It's not just about increasing pay and offering a big bonus to get people on, but it's also thinking about what are the protections and benefits that people have in starting a particular job? What are um, the reasonable assurances of protection, of safety that people might have in a particular job? There's no doubt COVID continues influencing the job market. But how much is difficult to say. After all, there are a lot of forces at play. Vaccine requirements at some workplaces, work from home opportunities at others, child care considerations, health care costs, career growth, income growth, even international trade policies and politics. 
So it's impossible to attribute any one reason to slowing job growth. I would not panic over this one job report, but it may be an indicator that we're not going to recover that quickly. Causation in life is tough. You know, it's, it's, you, know, you can say the Titanic sunk because it hit an iceberg, but you'd be forgetting that it was terribly constructed. It had lousy metal. Uh, it was poorly designed. And yeah, you had a captain who was told to slow down and he didn't. Of course, there's hope. The fate of the job market as the pandemic continues is a lot different than that of the Titanic. You can find a podcast of this program, including the interview we did with our previous guest, Luis Arguello of Demotech, back in December of 2020, when he had high hopes for his mask business. Just search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. When you find us, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a week. And please leave a review. You can follow us on social media. Look for us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at WLRN. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.